Amen. Well, good morning, church. I know uh, Elder Paul already introduced me and my wife, but if any of you have not yet met me, or I should say if I have not gotten the pleasure of meeting some of you this morning, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about myself. Um, As Paul mentioned, we moved here two months ago from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I am originally from Wisconsin. My wife is originally from Montana. And we have come here to be interns at Mile One Mission, most specifically to help Matt Leahy and the Leahy family as they plant Kilbride Community Church. Something that you have to know about me is that I live a very boring life. Samantha and I live a very boring life. In the last year, we have gotten engaged, married, I have graduated from seminary, and we've moved internationally. So, very boring lives. Well, let's go ahead and pray together one more time before I open God's word. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that it has been to sing your word, to confess your word, to hear your word, and to pray your word. Lord, amazing love, how can it be that you, our King, would die? And rise again, Lord, that we might be saved. Lord, before we begin looking at your word this morning, Lord, I want to pray for three things. Lord, firstly, I want to pray for me. Lord, I pray that you would take away any pride or any error within me. Lord, I pray that me standing up here, that I would be a mere vessel for your truth and nothing more. That the words that I speak, that they would be your words, not mine. Lord, secondly, I want to pray for the congregation here at Calvary Baptist Church. Lord, as we hear your word together, I pray that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears that we might hear and that we might see what you have for us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would touch all of us, me included, at our point of greatest need. And lastly, Lord, I pray for any unbelievers in this room, that if there are men or women in this room who do not know you, that they would repent and believe before they walk out the doors of this church today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, by a raise of hands, how many people in here have ever done something on their own when they should have asked for help? Anyone? Has anybody ever done something on their own when they should have asked for help? Okay, you can put your hands down. Man, I'm so glad I'm not the only one. Well, one thing that I am particularly bad at is navigation, is navigation. Now, don't get me wrong. I can drive fine. I've never gotten a ticket. But when it comes to knowing where to turn, what exit to get off on the highway, I'm just not good at it. My wife, on the other hand, is good at this. She always has this innate sense of knowing where we are, knowing where we need to turn, and where we need to go. So when we hop in our little car and attempt to drive around the roads of Newfoundland, she always asks me this wonderful question. She goes, dear, would you like me to help navigate you? (laughs) And now, because I am an extremely humble and self-aware newly married husband, (laughs) I always respond with, no, I'm good. I got it. And the parable goes, as it sounds, I start driving, I make a wrong turn, all because I did not take the help that I was freely given. 
Well, just as I am in desperate need of a helper when trying to navigate the roads of Newfoundland, we as Christians are in desperate need of a helper each and every day. Jesus talks about this helper in John 14, 26. Jesus says the helper, which also could be translated comforter or advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Furthermore, in Galatians 5, in our text for this morning, Paul talks about this helper, the Holy Spirit. But before we get into our text in Galatians 5, I want to take a step back and realize the context of where we are at in Galatians. Many of the interns and church planners have been, have been preaching through the book of Galatians in the past several months. Here we see that in the book of Galatians, Paul is defending and defining the true gospel. Defending and defining the true gospel specifically against a group of legalists, which is a word I'll define in a moment, who believed that you had to obey Old Testament ritual in order to keep your salvation. So Paul starts in the first chapter, Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7, by saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul lays the foundation in chapter 1 of Galatians by saying there is only one gospel. Well, what is that gospel? Paul continues in Galatians to flesh this out to show that the gospel is the story of how sinners can be saved in Christ by grace alone. Galatians 3 tells us, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. But rather, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Chapters 1 through 4 speak of how there is only one gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ. But in chapter 5, Paul turns. He turns from describing what the gospel is to showing how we ought to live the gospel out. Adam preached about this last week, and he showed us how living the gospel out should not be a life of legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is trusting in your own law-keeping to save you rather than trusting in Christ. Galatians 5.1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has set us free from the heavy burden of this Old Testament law. So, excuse me, so Paul says, live out that freedom by not going back to this yoke of slavery. But Paul knows that there is another ditch that the Galatians might fall into. Another side of the road, if you will. Some of them may not have been tempted to go back into legalism. Some of them may have been tempted to use their gospel freedom to live out lives of lawlessness. Lawlessness, which would mean using the gospel as a free pass or a license to do whatever you want to do. But Paul speaks against this in Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. Read them with me. For you were called to freedom, brothers, 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In summary, we see in Galatians that we have been saved by grace through faith alone. Yet, we should not use the freedom that we have in the gospel to fall back into legalism on the one hand or lawlessness on the other. As an example, going to church every week or reading our Bibles every day, though those are good things, we cannot believe that those save us. That would be legalism. But on the other side of the road, we can't just go sleeping around or mistreating one another or refusing to come to church. That would be lawlessness. But Paul says that there is a correct way to live the gospel out, and that is walking by the Spirit. And if you notice, that is my title for my sermon this morning, Walking by the Spirit. And today, what we're simply going to do is look at three ways how walking by the Spirit helps us live out the gospel, live out our Christian lives in the correct God-given way. My first point for this morning is this. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. Is that walking by the Spirit empowers us to choose Christ over our sin. Walking by the Spirit empowers us to choose Christ over our sin. We find this in verses 16 through 18. I'm going to read it again. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against or opposed to the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you, if you are led by the Spirit, Paul says, you are not under the law. Paul starts our text for this morning by saying, But I say... What Paul is doing here is contrasting a way of life found in verse 15, a way of life of biting and devouring one another and mistreating one another, or in other words, using our gospel freedom to do whatever we want, which leads to not loving one another. Paul says, don't live like that, but live like this. Well, how does he command us to live? He commands us to walk by the Spirit. The term walk here refers to a daily living of life. In biblical, in biblical times, they didn't have cars, they didn't have planes. They would walk to, go, to, to get to where they needed to go. So when Paul says walk by the Spirit, he's saying daily live your life right next to God himself. Now, as we think of this idea of walking, as an example here, my wife and I love to go on walks together, whether it's walking to the pond behind our house or walking downtown in St. John's. And there's a couple different ways that I can walk with my wife. I could walk behind her, to which she usually graciously says something like, hey, like, catch up, dude. Another way I could walk with my wife is walking in front of her. And to be honest, that's usually me. I'm usually just like ready to go. 
right? To which she graciously and lovingly says, hey, wait for me to catch up. But there's a third way I can walk with my wife, and that is walking right beside her or in accordance with her as we walk life together. This is what Paul is saying in relation to the Holy Spirit. And now it's difficult. It's difficult to define exactly, in a short sentence that is, how to walk by the Spirit. But, but here's, what, here's what the text is saying. Walking by the Spirit is daily living with God in mind, in God's way, and by God's power. I'll say that again if anyone wants to write it down. Walking by the Spirit is daily living with God in mind, in God's way, and by God's power. Daily living with God in mind, in God's way, by God's power. To flesh this out a little bit more, walking by the Spirit refers to living in accordance with and in submission to the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, right? We confess a Trinitarian God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So when Paul says walk by the Spirit, he's saying walk God's way, walk with God himself. Walking by the Spirit includes laying aside our own desires and aligning our priorities with God's priorities by his power. But what does this look like? What does this look like in our daily walk of life? A couple examples here. This looks like reading reading God's word every day and living it out. This looks like reading God's word every day and living it out. It's that simple. Furthermore, walking by the Spirit looks, looks like going to God in prayer in times of weakness rather than relying on your own strength. Walking by the Spirit looks like trusting God's plan in your life even when you don't like it. And let's be honest, that's, that's every one of us so often. We don't like the, the hand that we are dealt, we like to say, but this is trusting that God is good and that he is sovereign amidst it. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. Lastly, walking by the Spirit means the way you live here in church be the same way you live life Monday through Saturday. And the way you treat people here with love and kindness as you're supposed to, the way that you treat people outside the doors of this church. And let us acknowledge that there is a beautiful mystery here of how we and God are working together. We know that God is in us providing the desire and the ability to do what he has commanded, but simultaneously there's a beautiful mystery of how we are still called to action. One commentator says that the mystery of this perfect and paradoxical balance of walking by the Spirit cannot be fully understood or explained, but it can be fully experienced. Furthermore, Dane Ortland, in his book Deeper, says this. He says that living out the Christian life, or or walking by the Spirit, it is not God then me, or God not me, or God plus me. Rather, walking by the Spirit is God in me. Our unity with Christ by the Holy Spirit is how we live out the Christian life. This is how we live a godly life in the present age. And Paul continues by saying, If we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
The term desire here speaks of a lust or a craving or a deep passion for something. And the term flesh here doesn't refer to our skin and bones. It, it refers to the sinful nature that is inside of us. Or for any of you who like really big theological words, the term flesh here refers to the sinful stuff that's inside of us. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying if we walk by the Spirit, we will not satisfy or fulfill or entertain these sinful desires. Paul continues in verse 17. He says that the desires of the flesh, our sinful nature, are against the desires of the Spirit. These are opposed to you, to, or rather opposed to each other to keep us from doing the things we want to do. What Paul is saying here is that there is a battle inside of a Christian each and every day. We will either obey the desires of our sin or obey the desires of the Holy Spirit. But what Paul's getting at is you can't have both. We cannot hold Christ in one hand and sin in the other. There is a battle within us every day. And this battle that's raging inside of us keeps us from doing the good things that we want to do. I have a couple examples of this, and I'm going to start with a funny one, and then I'm going to get a little bit deeper. How many of you find it so hard in the morning to get out of your warm bed sheets to get up and read your Bible? That's my struggle. I'll just be honest, especially as this cold weather approaches, right? I wake up, that 6 a.m. alarm goes off, and I'm just so cozy. And praying and reading my Bible, I know I should do it, but man... It's easy just to stay in those warm bed sheets. But let's take it a step deeper. Have we ever struggled to love our spouses in the way that God has called us to? For those of you who are single, have you ever struggled to remain content in your singleness? Have we ever struggled to have joy when life doesn't go our way? Or peace when the bills need to be paid and the cash isn't rolling in? Have we ever harbored angerness or bitterness towards another brother or sister in Christ? Surely we all struggle with these things, and this is the tension that Paul is speaking of. But Paul says we have a helper. He says, verse 18, if we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. The idea of being led by the Spirit here is an idea of submission, of lining up under the Holy Spirit, doing what he says instead of what you want to do in your own sinful flesh. Paul says that if we do this, we are not under the law. In other words, if we are led by the Spirit, if we walk by him, we will not be condemned, right? This heavy yoke of the law has already been fulfilled in Christ, and we should simply live it out. My first point for this morning is that walking by the Spirit empowers us to choose Christ over our sin. But my second point as we move on in these verses is that by, is that by walking by the Spirit, we are empowered to produce spiritual fruit. Walking by the Spirit empowers us to produce spiritual fruit to produce spiritual fruit. But before Paul gets to describing all of the wonderful fruit of the Spirit, he shows us what we're not to do. Read verses 19 through 21 with me again. He says, 
Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and things like envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to spend some time here going through the works of the flesh. And there are 15 of them, but to help you follow along, I'm going to, I'm going to put them in three categories. So the first three are sexual sins. Sexual sins. The next two are spiritual sins. And the last 10 are social sins or sins that we do against one another. Let's walk through these. Firstly, sexual immorality. This refers to anything that goes against God's perfect pattern of sex within a one-man, one-woman, covenanted marriage relationship. Anything outside that pattern, Paul says, is sexual immorality. Next, impurity. Impurity refers to uncleanliness in the Old Testament and most likely references perverse acts of sexual sin here. Next, sensuality. This is a lack of restraint, specifically in the sexual realm. These are the three sexual sins Paul refers to. But the next two are are quote-unquote spiritual sins, and that might not be the best word, but I think it's helpful here. First, he refers to idolatry. Idolatry is simply worship in the wrong direction. Worship in the wrong direction. We know that we are supposed to worship God and God alone. But when we place our value, our worth, our identity in something else, we worship that thing. Now, so often we think of idolatry as, you know, worshiping these these little man-made figures and things like that. But here's an example to help you realize what this is really talking about. I've heard that in other religions who do worship actual man-made, you know, idols— They'll take their chairs in their living room and center it around, whether it's Buddha or or whatever, right? And we find that strange until we go home to our own living rooms and all of our chairs are centered around our television. Now, I'm not telling you that you need to go home and, and flip your chairs backwards, right? I'm trying to get at your heart. What are we worshiping? The next Sin is is sorcery or witchcraft. This is specifically worshiping the powers of evil. It also includes attempts to talk with evil forces or partaking in drugs that surrender our ability to think clearly. Sorcery, idolatry, these are quote-unquote spiritual sins. Now, as we go through these first five, you may be thinking you're off the hook. You know, Maybe these things, maybe idolatry got you a little bit, but the other ones are like, you know, like, I don't partake in witchcraft. It's not really me. But as we go through these next 10 sins, these next 10 works of the flesh, I want you to ask yourself how you're doing. Because of, as I have studied this text and, and have preached this text myself multiple times in the mirror, um, it's very hard to get through this list without, without being convicted that we need to repent. The first one that is listed is enmity. This is inward hatred towards, some, towards someone else. For example, when we harbor bitterness and resentment towards someone, or when we respond in anger to someone who said something that you didn't like. 
The next one, strife. This is an outward manifestation of an inward hatred. Next, jealousy. Jealousy is selfishly keeping what we have. Now, there is good jealousy that's not selfish, right? God is jealous for his people. For those of us who are married, we should be jealous for our spouses. But jealousy is bad when we selfishly withhold our gifts, our talents, our money from serving the church. Next, fits of anger. These are outbursts or outrages when people don't do what you want. This is when your kids or your spouse or your roommate or your sibling, I hope I covered everybody there, um, whenever they do something that you think is annoying, so you lash out at them. That's a fit of anger. The next three, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. These are hostile disagreements or even factions that form in the church because we we refuse to forgive one another. This includes when, when one body of believers segregates itself, when we have one opinion over here and one opinion over here, and we don't have unity in Christ, but we tear one another apart. Envy. This is covetousness or desiring what someone else has. This is when we in our sinful flesh desire someone else's job or someone else's salary or someone else's family, so on and so forth. And the last two, drunkenness and orgies, which refers to an excessive intake of alcohol and the products thereof. Now, notice what Paul calls these. He calls them the works of the flesh. These are things that we do in our own sinful nature. And Paul continues by saying that these works of the flesh, in verse 21, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as we approach this verse this morning, we have to realize what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. So first, let's talk about what he is not saying. He is not saying that true Christians who have repented of their sin, believed in the gospel, if they do any one of these during the day, that they are on a road to hell. Because let's realize, all of us, all of us sin. First John 1 John 1.8 tells us that even Christians sin each and every day. And, and yes, we should be living continual lives of repentance. Some translations, depending on what, what translation you're reading, might, might have the word practice instead of the word do. What Paul is getting at here is a continual way of life. What Paul is saying here is that those who love, who crave endlessly the works of the flesh and have no desire for the things of God, he shows that they are on a road to hell. Once again, Paul's point here is about the heart. True Christians don't like when they sin. They live continual lives of repentance. They realize that when they sin, they should turn to God, that they might sin no more. But those who are unsaved, who have not come to Christ, love their sin. And maybe that's some of you this morning. Perhaps you read this list and you find it as a description of your own life, a list of things that you love and you crave But brothers and sisters, if that is you this morning, 
Actually, I shouldn't use the word brothers and sisters there. If there is anyone in you this morning who is not a brother or sister, who is walking in the ways of this world, let me encourage you that there is an opportunity for salvation in Jesus Christ. If you are living in your own sin this morning, there is an opportunity for forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Jesus has come and lived the life you could not live and died the death that you deserve to die and rose again on the third day to triumph over sin and death. And because he has atoned for our lawlessness, we can find salvation in him. If anyone in this room does not know Christ, let me encourage you to repent of these works of the flesh and believe in Jesus Christ. And if that is you today, please find one of the elders, me or Jen, if you would like to have a conversation about what it would look like to come to Christ. Well, after Paul gets done talking about the works of the flesh, these things that we as Christians should not be doing, he shows what we should be doing, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, notice something here, how the word fruit of the Spirit is contrasted with the word works of the flesh. Works are something we do in and of ourselves, but fruit is what God produces in us. Amen? Notice also, works is plural. As you read this list of 15 things, maybe you do some and, and you don't do others. But the fruit of the Spirit is collective, meaning that if we are walking in God's way by God's power, if we are walking by the Spirit, all nine of these fruits will be being produced in us. So let's walk through them. The first one, love. Love. And this one colors all the rest, does it not? Culture tells us that love is a blind feeling. Scripture defines love as a desire and a choice to do good to one another. A longing for someone else's benefit, even if they don't deserve it. Obviously, as we walk through the gospel, even in Galatians, as we sing, amazing love, how can it be that he, my king, would die for me? We see this love in God himself. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. As Christians walking by the Spirit, we see Christ as a model for love so that we can love everyone else around us. Secondly, joy. Joy. So often we think that joy is the same as momentary happiness, but scripture has other Another definition for joy. Joy is a satisfied or content spirit, no matter your earthly circumstances. If some of you were here uh, several weeks ago when Steve preached on Habakkuk, he showed that Habakkuk's life wasn't going super great. He had all these questions and he was wondering, but Habakkuk, even in a difficult circumstance, could find joy in Christ, knowing that he is sovereign. Third, peace. Peace is not an absence of trial. Brothers and sisters, so often we think that once we get over this trial, then we can have peace. But biblical peace is a restful or put-together state of mind, even amidst life's deepest struggles. Peace comes not from the absence of conflict, but from knowing that we are no longer enemies of God, but that we are friends of God. And if you are a friend of God, then you are able to have peace in every circumstance. 
Next, patience. Patience refers to a long wrath or a slowness to become angry. God is patient with us each and every day. After we sin, he has mercy towards us. And that patience that God has is what we should have towards one another. Kindness. Kindness. This is a tender disposition or concern for others. A tender disposition or concern for others. Calvary Baptist Church, I'll be honest with you this morning. In the past two months I have been at this church, I have realized that this is a kind church. When Samantha and I got here, we walked into a fully, mostly fully furnished apartment, and the things that we didn't have were donated to us later. I just want to thank you for your kindness towards us. And that is evidence that many of you, all of you, are at some, for those of you who are truly saved, are, are walking by that spirit and, and living that out. The next one, goodness. Goodness is, is moral excellence that seeks to obey God. This includes even when no one is watching. Faithfulness. This is a dependability and loyalty of someone who keeps his or her promises. Have you ever met somebody and in the first five minutes you just felt like you could trust them with all of your deepest, darkest secrets? That's what this faithfulness is getting at, this idea of loyalty, dependability. The next one, gentleness. A meek, humble, and patient spirit in all things. This is when you use your words or your actions to be kind to one another, even when they may not return the favor. Lastly, self-control, a restraint of appetite so that you don't fulfill sinful desires. Paul says that all of these fruit of the Spirit, all of these are not against the law. In other words, Paul is speaking to the Galatians and he says, do you want to fulfill the law? Love one another, have joy, have peace. And don't miss this. Don't miss this this morning. The imperative in this text, or the thing you are supposed to do, is to walk by the Spirit. Paul doesn't say, go be loving, go be joyful, go be at peace. Though that is true. And there's other New Testament and Old Testament passages that command those things. But the imperative, the thing we're supposed to do in this text is walk by the Spirit. And as we walk by our Helper, all of these things will be produced as God works in us. Amen. Let's go to our last point for this morning. Our last point is that walking by the Spirit bears witness to Christ's victory in us. Walking by the Spirit bears witness to Christ's victory in us. Let's read verses 24 through 26. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul says here in verse 24 that those who belong to Christ, those who are truly saved, have repented of their sins and believed in the gospel. Our sinful nature, that sinful stuff inside of us, has already been crucified with Christ. Romans 6 talks about this. Go ahead and flip there to Romans 6. I'll give you a moment to turn there. 
Romans is another letter of Paul where he talks about many of the same things. In Romans 6, he's also walking out how to live according to the gospel. And in Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, he says this. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The idea here is that when Christ died on the cross, our sinful flesh died with him. Flip back over to Galatians. Galatians 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, remember how I said that there is a battle each and every day within the Christian. And yes, that is true. Because the desires of our sin and the desires of God wage war within us every day. But the key that Paul is getting at here is though there's a battle, Christ has won the war. The idea here is not that the presence of our sin has been taken from us. Though that will be true someday. When we are glorified with Christ in heaven, the presence of sin, there will no longer be a battle. It will be gone. But the idea that that Paul is saying here is that the power or the dominion of our sin has been defeated. The sinful man inside of us has been killed. The key here is not the absence of our sin, but our victory over it because of what Christ has done. Once again, as Paul says in Romans 6, sin has no dominion over us. So how do we live that out? Well, Paul says once again, verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There are four ways in which Paul encourages us to interact with the Holy Spirit in our text for this morning. In verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, he says, be led by the Spirit. And the last two here in verse 25, live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. Remember the analogy of Samantha and I going on a walk, right? I walk next to her. But what Paul is saying in this text is walk so closely with the Holy Spirit that you are lining up your steps with his. Walk so closely with God that you are in step with him. And what's the overflow of this? Paul says, verse 26, let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If we walk by the Spirit as an overflow of Christ's victory in us, we won't be conceited. We won't provoke one another or envy one another. And in a way, that's, that's the entire point of our text for this morning. He's saying, walk by the Spirit so you treat one another as the gospel would have you. Love one another and so fulfill the law. Well, let's review what we've learned today. 
we've seen that walking by the Spirit empowers us to choose Christ over our sin. We've seen that walking by the Spirit empowers us to produce spiritual fruit. And we've seen that walking by the Spirit bears witness to Christ's victory in us. But before I end this, I would like to give you four applications. Four applications. And if you're taking notes, they all start with the letter R. So just go ahead and jot down four R's. The first one, read the word. Read the word. How else will you know where the Spirit of God is leading you unless you read the letter to which he has given you? Read the word. Love the word. Next, reach in and reach out. Reach in and reach out. Once again, the context of this passage is, is bracketed or surrounded by commands to treat one another in love. So, let us reach into our own hearts and examine ourselves to see the ways in which we have not loved one another well. Furthermore, let us reach out to those in the church to see how we can help them bear their burdens as we walk by the Spirit. Third, rely on the Spirit. Rely on the Spirit. Remember, what Christ has done on the cross has already provided you with victory over sin. So don't walk away from this message discouraged about how you have failed, but walk away from this message encouraged that you have a helper to help you win every battle against your sin. Remember the analogy of Samantha helping me drive my car, right? Navigating me. I am in desperate need of a helper. But guess what? I have one. And if you're a Christian, you are in desperate need of a helper. But guess what? You have one. The Holy Spirit. Rely on him. Don't try to, don't try to drive your own car without a map. Don't try to live the Christian life without God because you can't. Rely on the Spirit. Lastly, remember Christ's return. Remember Christ's return. Soon, and very soon, the tension of the desires of our sin and the desires of the Holy Spirit will be no more. For those in Christ, a day is coming when we will no longer struggle against the flesh, but live eternally at peace with the Spirit. Let us look forward to that day. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have given us an advocate, a comforter, a helper in the Holy Spirit. Thank you that by your grace and in Christ's power, we can have victory over sin as we live out what you have done in us. So let us walk by the Spirit. Let us live in accordance with him. And let everything we do be done in love and for your glory. Amen.